Hey, y'all. Thanks for tuning into this week's podcast. This week, we continue our series on what it means to minister to the Lord. And we explore that theme in the Old Testament, especially focusing on the life of King David. We believe that King David not only ministered to the Lord through obedience to what God had commanded, but also went above and beyond taking the time to learn God's preferences, what really moved God's heart, and then went out of his way to give that to God. And we believe that God is raising up resting places on the earth today, just like he did in David's tabernacle years and years and years ago. And it's our hope and our prayer that this message would inspire you to live a life of ministering to the Lord, of loving God in the way that he wants to be loved, and to be a part of a community that is building a resting place for him. Love you guys. Have a great week. Welcome, guys, tonight. A lot of people I know, some people don't know, so excited we get to minister to the Lord together tonight. And we have been in the middle of a, uh, a quote-unquote quote series on what exactly it means to minister to the Lord. So 420, our mission is to minister to the Lord and to live out the gospel every day. And we've really felt the Lord hammering home that first part of what does it mean to minister to him? And Jeff did, you did a great job introing it all, man. It was really good. So... Um, Going to talk a little bit more about that tonight. We're basically going to like talk about that until either we run out of things to say or the Lord says to stop talking about it. So I think we're like five weeks in. Um, Matt is in Pakistan. And so this, if this is your first time here, Matt is our typical speaker, and he's currently in Pakistan right now. Uh, and he's in Pakistan for the next three weeks. And uh, really excited about that. So yesterday he had the opportunity to talk to some um, leaders and um, yeah, some community leaders in Karachi, Pakistan. And so they were Muslims, Sikhs, they were Hindus, they were some Christians, some just social activists. And they all got together, like this is a big deal in Pakistan. They all got together, uh, Matt and Tony, who was going with them, if you know Tony from Revive the World, uh, they had an opportunity to talk about love and unity in their city. Incredible. Um, and then I think they spoke at a church last night and then... Uh, tomorrow morning, which I think it's tomorrow morning there. I was doing the math on the way here. So it's 5 a.m. where they are right now. It's nine hours before. And they were waking up at 4.30 in the morning. So they're in the car right now, driving to a little village outside of Karachi to teach, I think it's a couple day conference to like 1,500 pastors. And so if we can be praying for Matt as he's out there still, um, they, there's actually a, a suicide bomber in Karachi this week that killed some missionaries. Um, so this isn't just like, keep him safe on the flight and help everything to go smoothly and help the snacks to be good on United. Like, this is like, man, like, this is, this is the real stuff. And so um, be praying for, for Matt as he's there, and then he'll be back in, I think, three and a half weeks. So I'm speaking this week, Jeff is speaking next week, and then I'm speaking the week after that. So um, excited about that. And um, I think as we're talking about travel, let's see here, Jeff and Liz just got back from Florida and then, Taylor, where did you wake up this morning, Taylor? You woke up in South Carolina. At what time? At 3 a.m. Her and Scott were in a conference and drove back here to be here tonight and then to be at some other stuff as well. But I think that's impressive. So I feel like, I feel like road trips are pretty, I don't know, I feel like they're pretty polarizing. So I feel like some people either love them or they hate them. So if you, who likes road trips? Is your hand? Okay. All right. So there's... 
most people. What I've found in my marriage is that one person likes road trips and one person hates road trips. Or the other, okay, yeah, so over here as well. It's the same way, which basically makes road trips hard because it has to be both. So growing up, I used to, I used to go on road trips all the time. In high school, we got our license, uh, like me and my buddies got our licenses. We drove up to Wisconsin a couple times, like slept on Lake Michigan, uh, stayed with some friends up there, super good time, no plan, ended up sleeping in vans. And then after high school, our big plan was to go to uh, a little island off of the coast of Maine. And so, like, the Atlantic Ocean, beautiful. There's this national forest up there that I always forget the name of, but it was beautiful. We drove up there. Some of you may be too young to remember MapQuest. You guys remember MapQuest, like, before maps? I was thinking, I was like, man, there may actually be some people in this room. Has anybody not heard? Like, Kate, have you heard of MapQuest? Did you ever use it? Holy moly, guys. Us, like, 29, 30, 30-year-olds. 30 Woo! We've officially hit the age. We fit it. All right, so with MapQuest, it's like Google Maps, except you pull it up on your computer, and it would show you all the stops, and you would have to print off like 15 pages of all the turns because you couldn't. <laughs> we got so many nods over here. Yeah, so like 15 pages, and you're printing off. So I remember like at youth group with my buddies going and printing off these like these 15 pages of saying, all right, we're going to drive to... We're gonna drive to Maine. We're gonna do it. We did it right after our graduation party. We had no money, so we just took the bread and the ham left over from our graduation party, and we survived on that for a week. And we stayed in, I think it's called Acadia, Acadia National Forest in, uh, in Maine. And man, we loved it. We stayed outside, we stayed on the coast, did all these road trips in high school. When Bailey and I started dating like 10 years ago, which feels like a long time already, learned very quickly, like we went on a couple road trips together, but we learned very quickly that she's not as much a fan of road trips. In fact, like if you get in the car with her, she'll be asleep in 30 minutes. Like that's, that's about it. And so it's, you get 30 minutes of conversation and then she's out and then she's sleeping the whole time. And if I said like, man, I want to go somewhere north where it's cold and I want to take a road trip, she would be down. She would, she would hop in and be like, all right, I'm in, we're going but it wouldn't like specifically love her. If I want to love her, I'm picking somewhere that's an all-inclusive hotel, somewhere warm on the beach where she doesn't have to do anything, where nothing is planned. Like she's planting one spot in the sun and not moving for five days. Like that's it. That's her ideal time. But if I wanted to go on a road trip, she'd say, all right, like, well, we can do it. We can do it. But just over the years, I've just learned, like, man, Bailey doesn't relax if there's constant plans all the time. And so early on, you know, I would plan different activities that we would do. But over time, we just figured out, like, all right, it's best if I want to love her and plan a vacation that loves her, that I'm going to plan something where there is nothing on the calendar and that she can just be warm and I'll sit in the shade right next to her because my skin lasts about 15 minutes before it burns to a crisp. And we're good like that. We just have different preferences. And sometimes I don't understand. I don't understand the draw of sitting in the hot sun for six hours straight and being sweaty and being like, oh, man, this was a great time. <laughs> like, let's, and then let's do it six days in a row. But she has preferences. And just as Jeff talked about in our, at the beginning is that God is a person and God has preferences. 
And God has ways that he wants to be loved and he has ways that he doesn't want to be loved. He's not just some ethereal force out there where we can just do anything or throw something against the wall and it'll be like, man, everything means the same to him. Like he is a person. He has real emotions. We are created in the image of God. And as we're created in the image of God, we can think rationally. We have preferences. We have emotions. We're able to be affected by other people positively and negatively. These are all parts of being made in the image of God. And so as we're learning to love God or talking about ministering to the Lord, I really think that the core definition of ministering to the Lord is loving God in the way that he wants to be loved and responding to God in the way that he wants to be responded to. And so intentionally taking the time and the intentionality to look at God, to learn from him over time and saying, God, what moves your heart? What actually blesses you? What doesn't bless you? What are, what are just things that I do for you that I think would love you, but you haven't actually asked for? That actually are just things that would love me in return. Like in what ways am I trying to plan a, a cold road trip when you're asking for a beach vacation? Because I want to give you the beach vacation. And there's been like, it's been pretty popular like, over the last couple of years. I remember in college when the, the video came out where it's like Christianity is a, it's a relationship not a religion. You remember that? It's like Jonathan, how do you say his name? Bethke? Bethke, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, great video. Like, it was solid. It's a good correction to, like, the overswing of just performancism, right? And of striving and of just doing the right things. But at the same time, like, God, following Jesus is a religion and a relationship. And honestly, most days, like, I would pick a religion over a relationship any day. <laughs> A religion is simple. Like a religion, I can just follow the rules. I can, you know, do whatever. I can do X, Y, and Z. I understand religion. And I can actually, like, be in control of religion sometimes. But anybody who, like, who's married, like, you don't always know what's going on in a relationship. <laughs> you don't always know why this person, whether it's a marriage or any sort of relationship, why their preference is the way that it is. And sometimes those preferences change depending on the seasons. <laughs> the goalposts change and all of a sudden what was successful like six months ago is no longer successful. Holy moly, it's frustrating. <laughs> but super good. And so in many ways, like religion is so much easier. And, but our relationship with the Lord, following the Lord is not just a religion. It is, it's a relationship. It is learning what he loves. It's learning even season to season. Like how can we connect how can we connect? We talk a lot about like praying around here. And like, I, I don't really love prayer that much, but I really love connecting with the Lord. And he's chosen prayer. And so, great, we'll do prayer. <laughs> we'll do worship, whatever, whatever it is. And depending on the season, my quiet time look with him looks different because I want to connect with him. I don't want to do, just do religion, although it is so much easier. Like following the Lord is a base of religion and you go further into relationship. And you look at the Bible and you see like, man, the Lord has like some really specific preferences. So you think about the Old Testament. We learn a lot about the worship of God from the Old Testament. So the New Testament is like a revelation, a beautiful revelation of Jesus and the church and instructions to the church. But it's the same God in the Old Testament as well. He didn't all of a sudden like give up his preferences. He didn't become a different God in the New Testament. Like he's the same God, old and new. It says uh, in James that all, all scriptures God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. At, when he was writing that, what was he writing about? He wasn't writing about the New Testament. He was writing about the Old Testament. He was saying that all scripture, both old and then the new, like the life of Jesus is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting. 
And so um, I want to do a, a, little bit of, a little bit of history and talk about kind of the history of ministering to the Lord and the Lord's instructions on how to minister to him. And at, at kind of the very beginning of when, uh, when God is teaching the Israelites of how to worship to him, it's right after God calls the Israelites out of Egypt and he's meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai and he gives incredibly specific instructions on how to build the temple, how to offer sacrifices, like incredibly detailed. Like if you just need convincing that God has preferences, just look at how specific he is on how to build the temple. Where he's talking about like, like telling the priests what to wear, like down to the underwear. He's telling them what to use to build, like to, to weave the fabric. He's telling them what color to make things. He's telling them how long to build this tabernacle, how wide to build it. And he's saying that build this place and offer these sacrifices to me at these specific times in this specific way with the best craftsmen that you have, and I will dwell in this box. This crazy paradox where God is everywhere. Matt talked about this a couple weeks ago, where God is everywhere, and yet he chose to have his manifest presence dwell in the Ark of the Covenant. Whereas today, Jesus said that anyone who believes in him, he comes and makes his home in us. And also in a different way, he says, anytime two or more of you are gathered in one place, I am there. So it's this, it's this crazy like paradox of the dimensions of his presence, right? He's everywhere. Then when we say yes to him, then he's there. And then when we're all together, he's there, you know, in different dimensions. It's this paradox that we may not, never understand. But in the Old Testament, God said, I will dwell in the ark. My presence will be there. And in the Hebrew language, there was no word for presence, right? There was just the word for face. And so when Yahweh says, like, my face will be there, my presence will be there. What he's saying is, like, him as a person, like his essence. <clears throat> and so God gives these incredibly detailed instructions to Moses. And so they take the tabernacle, it's movable, it's in a tent, and they take the ark inside, and Joshua takes over. They go into the promised land. They conquer all these nations as they follow the Lord. The Lord is their king. They don't have a, sp a specific king because the Lord is their king. And so it finally gets to this, this point where Samuel is a young boy and Eli is the prophet, or he, Eli is, yes, he's the prophet and the high priest, and Eli completely fails as a father. And so Eli is supposed to be overseeing the temple, which is at Gibeon, it's the, sorry, the tabernacle, not the temple, and he's supposed to be stewarding the presence of God. He's supposed to be leading everyone in what it looks like to, to minister to the Lord. And so... He's supposed to be leading this, and then his sons are just running wild. And so his sons are stealing food. They're stealing money from people that come to give to the temple. They're sleeping with people in the temple, like totally disobeying the Lord and not stewarding their call, the Levitical call to minister to the Lord at all. And so Israel has been going through these constant wars because they haven't been obeying the Lord. And they think, hey, if we bring the Ark of the Covenant, our secret weapon, to war, then we're going to win. We're gonna win. So they take the Ark of the Covenant out to war, but really, I mean, there's a lesson in here about trying to manipulate the Lord's presence when you're not trying to obey him. Like, he's not gonna have it, just using him for his power. And Israel loses. They lose. And so the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. They can't believe it. It actually says that when the Ark of the Covenant came out to the battlefield, it said all the Philistines were quaking because they had heard the stories of what God had done to Egypt. They had heard the stories of what God had done as they came into the promised land. And this is, I really believe that this is a, the, the main reason why God didn't want there to be a king in Israel. is because when other nations heard about what the Israelites were doing, God received the glory. 
It wasn't like, man, this great leader led them out and we're afraid of this great leader. They were afraid of the presence of God. They were afraid of God himself. And so God wanted to be king over Israel because he received glory through that. So the, the Philistines take the, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, and they keep it in captivity. I, I love the story. You can go back and read it. And it's in the book of, I think it's 1 Samuel. And they say that they, they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. And so it's their God. They put the Ark of the Covenant on the ground. They go to bed. They wake up the next morning. And the giant idol of Dagon that they built is broken in half and laying face down on the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, they're like, wow, what are the odds? <laughs> Let's do this again. Like, we got to pick up our God. And so they pick him up and they put him back together. They go to bed. They wake up the next morning. And again, their God is broken and laying in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so they, they keep doing this for a little while. They kind of move the Ark of the Covenant around a little bit. And then sicknesses start breaking out in the Philistines until they finally get to a point where they're like, man, we cannot have this. Like we can't have their God because they saw God dwelling in the Ark of the Covenant. We can't have him here. So we got to send them back to Israel. So there's this whole fiasco. They send them back to Israel. When it gets back to Israel, it's in this outer like farming community. And some of the men of that farming community, they all were rejoicing, but they broke the law and they looked inside of the Ark of the Covenant. So a bunch of these guys died because only Levites were supposed to steward to the Ark. So a bunch of them died. So they decided to just keep the Ark of the Covenant on like the outskirts of society. So the tabernacle was still going on at Gibeon. They were still offering sacrifices. They were still doing religion, but the presence of God was put to the outside of society because it was confusing. It was like, why did we receive God's presence? And then why did he kill a bunch of us? <laughs> So they kept the presence of God on the outskirts of society while still offering sacrifices. So then Samuel becomes a prophet, and it was during this time that the people finally had had enough of these wars, and they came to Samuel, and they said, Samuel, give us a king. Give us a king. We need a leader, they say, to unite us and to lead us in battle against the Philistines, against all these other nations that are coming against us. And I just think this is fascinating because this was incredibly, incredibly offensive to both Samuel and to God. In fact, Samuel starts like blowing up on these guys and God says, wait, 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 Samuel. Like they, they're, not, they're not revolting against you. They're revolting against me. And they were revolting against God because God wanted to be king. God wanted to be the leader. And I, I think it's fascinating that it's in the time when the presence of God wasn't central of their community. Like they had been around for a long time. They had conquered nations. They had come out of uh, Egypt, obviously, and then gone into the promised land. And they had had judges, they had had leaders, but they had had no king that they could look to and put their hope in. And here, the presence of God is decentralized for just a few years. And all of a sudden people are like, we need something to put our hope in. We need something, someone that will unite us, that will lead us against our enemies. And I just think it's fascinating of like when the presence of God is not central, how quickly we go to other people or other things to say, man, I need something to put my hope in for the future. 
I need something that we can unify around. I just think we see it so often. Like we see it in churches, we see it in our own personal lives, whether it's around a leader, it's around a gifting, it's around a bank account, it's around a political figure. It's like we need something to put our hope in for the future and how easy it is to have that slide off of the Lord if his presence, if his personhood, if that relationship, the one-on-one connection, the intimacy is not prioritized in our lives. So, God says, fine, like, I'll give you a king, and he, they give, he gives the Israelites a king that they think would be good. And so he picks Saul, who is he's super tall. It says that he's taller and more handsome than any of the other men in Israel. So he picks the most handsome man, and he even puts his spirit on him. And so he leads the Israelites into battle against the Philistines, against all their enemies, and they win for a while. But eventually Saul gives into fear of man and he gives into pride and he starts offering sacrifices and consulting with mediums and not following the Lord. So finally God is like, you know what? Like we're done with this. I'm lifting my spirit off of this man and he says, I am going to pick a man who will be after my own heart. Essentially he said, all right, fine. You want a king, I'll give you a king, a type of king that you think that you want. And then after that didn't work, he said, okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me show you what a king looks like. I'm gonna pick a king that is a man after my own heart. And this is where he sends Samuel to Jesse's family, and David is the eighth son that's not even included, probably because he was an illegal son that his father had had an affair, and then he was the last son, so he wasn't even included in the list of sons originally. So he calls David in from the field, and Samuel, it's the famous line where Samuel's like, this guy? And, David's, or, and God tells Samuel, like, I don't look at the outside. I don't look at the qualifications. I look at the heart. And what he's saying is, is like, I am, we've already tried this whole looking on the outside thing. We've looked at, we've tried a king where it's built off of gifting, it's built off of qualification, but I'm gonna show you what it looks like to build a kingdom around a king with a a heart after my own heart. And so David is anointed king, and yet he's anointed king at like 15 years old, and it's 15 years before it actually happens. Like he holds on to that promise for 15 years, he's hunted by Saul, And then at 30 years old, he finally becomes king, kind of a prophetic imagery of Jesus, right? So Jesus enters into ministry at 30 years old. So David becomes king at 30, and one of the first things that he does, and I know a lot of you know a lot of this, and a lot of this is review. Some of you, this may be the first time as far as this history. But through, through all of this, the temple... The, the tabernacle is still being used to offer sacrifices. And so they're offering animal sacrifices to God. They're following his law. The Levites are overseeing that. And yet the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, is still just at a random farm that is prospering like down the road. And so one of the first things David does is he comes in and he says, guys, we have to bring the presence, we have to bring the Ark back to the center of society. And so David does something that's like totally unprecedented and I would look at it and say like, man, that's, that's probably illegal. So he, he goes and he says, I'm not gonna bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the ta- the Moses' tabernacle where they're offering sacrifices. I want it right next to my palace in Jerusalem, which is different than Gibeon. And I'm gonna do something different. I'm not gonna just offer sacrifices like God has asked for. I'm gonna keep doing those sacrifices, but I am also going to surround it with 4,000 singers and musicians for 24-7 worship, just continuously. And it's gonna cost us about the modern equivalent of $30 million a month. And he asked everybody and said, hey, is this cool with you guys? (laughs) 
And it says people said yes. So, so they did it. And so David goes out there and he starts to bring the Ark of the Covenant back and they, uh, he just grabs some guys, some of his mighty men, and then they put it on a cart and they start bringing it to Jerusalem. All of a sudden it starts falling off the cart. Uzzah, one of the mighty men, reaches out and touches it and Uzzah dies on the spot. And so David's like, well, I'm done with this. Like, I'm trying to do something for the Lord. And he sabotages it. So he puts the plan away. He puts the Ark of the Covenant at another farm, which goes on and prospers. And it says that David was, he, David was pissed at God. He was super upset. He's like, Lord, like, I was trying to do this for you. I was trying to honor you. I was trying to obey you. And it did not work at all. In fact, it seemed like you were working against me. And man, I've had times in my life where it feels like I'm trying to do something for the Lord. And it's like, Lord, like, this is not turning out the way that I expected, like, at all. <laughs> at all. But I love David's honesty. Like, his honesty of just saying, like, Lord, this sucks. But I also love David's response because he didn't just cause, it didn't cause him to just run away and remove himself to the Lord, from the Lord and give him a reason to become bitter and say, like, nope, it's not worth it. Like, I don't know, I tried and then move on to the next thing. It, we see that he went back and he looked at the law of Moses and he saw that, okay, you're not supposed to use a cart, you're supposed to use poles to carry the presence of God and you're not supposed to just use anybody, strong guys, you're supposed to use Levites. Only Levites are meant to carry the presence of God. God had very specific preferences on how to be worshiped, on how his presence is supposed to be stewarded. And so he goes out and he tries it again and he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem in his own now made-up tabernacle <laughs> that is to be known as David's tabernacle. So they're still offering sacrifices at a different location, and David's like, you know what, Lord? Like, we've spent time together. I'm gonna give you something different. I'm still gonna do what you asked for, but I'm gonna give you something else. And so we see that's where David comes in and he's dressed in just a priestly ephod, so just the priestly underwear. He's dancing before the Lord, looking absolutely ridiculous. And he's giving this Lord an offering. What I, what I love about this example is the Israelites had asked for a king when God wanted to be king. And David makes a statement with dancing before the ark. In those days, if you conquered a kingdom, then you would parade the losing, conquered king in front of the winning king. So you'd go back to your city or you would parade through their city and you would embarrass the king in front of you. And so you would parade through and you would embarrass the king. They would be naked. They would be, you know, in their underwear. David basically put himself in the place of the conquered king and says, I am the conquered king. And he said that even though I wear the crown, in Israel, God is the conquering king here still. Yahweh is the king here. And so David was going back to God's original intention of saying, man, God will receive the glory here. God is the leader here. We will respond to him. And even though I'm wearing the crown, I still submit to Yahweh in the middle of it. I love it. And so David sets up this new tabernacle and the way he set it up was 4,000 full-time singers and musicians. He had 24 shifts of one-hour-long sets. And so they established 24-7 worship and prayer for 33 years it lasted. And so the way that they did it was they had 24 elders or essentially like 24 worship leaders that were older men, that were wise, that were firm in the Lord. They were Levites. And then it said that they hired then their relatives 
and basically they're apprentices to then be the musicians around them and to be the ones that learn from these leaders. So they have 24 basically elders that are worshiping in one hour shifts before the Lord for 33 years. And I, this, is, this is crazy. So uh, if you have your Bibles, I can't believe it's taken us so long to actually go to a verse. Let's go to Revelation 5, 8. Revelation 5, 8. That's in the, the back of the Bible. So Revelation 5, 8, obviously, uh, Revelation is John's vision of heaven. And so John, the Apostle John, is seeing what is happening in heaven right now. It's absolutely incredible. So, uh, it's talking about Jesus, who is the lamb. And it says in verse seven that Jesus came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And it says in 5.8, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one, each of the elders had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and tongue, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign forever. Okay, so right now in heaven, there are 24 elders around the throne with harps and with bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So it says other places in Revelation that our prayers are like incense before the Lord, that they are sweet smelling. He loves our prayers. We also see that these elders have harps, for some reason, God surrounds himself with music in heaven. I don't know why. It's a preference. God loves music. He loves when we play for him. And when we look at the Bible, there's, there's a lot of times when, if, if we're looking for his preferences, if we're reading through the Bible and saying, God, what pleases you? What do you like? It's, it's really fascinating. Like, if you just start reading through the Bible and asking that question every time of like, what are, what are God's preferences? What does he like? There's two different ways that we kind of see like what he enjoys, what loves him is number one, it's like, it's the direct command and God will say it. Like Jesus says that he, I mean, all throughout scripture, really, it says that God hates inequality and he loves justice. He loves mercy. He's very straightforward on it. He's very straightforward when he says, like, he loves when people worship in unity. He loves it when his people come together. God, uh, Jesus prays in John 17 that we would be one, that we would live in unity together. And then there's also times that people do things for God in the Bible that really, like, blow him away. And so those, in the same way as if, like, your wife or your friend or, your, you know, your spouse, somebody does something to love them and it means a ton to them, you take note and be like, okay, so they like this, right? And so, for example, like Matt, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Mary of Bethany, where she poured out the expensive perfume on Jesus, on his feet, on his head, and gave this crazy financial sacrifice, this social sacrifice, because it would have been so, like, offensive and embarrassing, and yet she poured out her perfume on Jesus. Jesus never asked for that. He never said, you shall pour out oil on my feet. But we see from his response that it meant so much to him, right? And so we learn the Lord's preferences through the Bible, through his direct statements, his direct commands, and when he is loved, when people do things to love him. So um, in 
Revelation, when it says that there's 24 elders with harps and with bowls, we see that God, he enjoys the prayers, the worship of his saints, and he enjoys music, like when we play for him. So this is crazy of, there's 24 elders in heaven, and David, thousands of years before the book of Revelation was written, assigns 24 elders at the tabernacle to minister to the Lord with music and with prayers. So essentially, David caught a revelation of what was happening in heaven thousands of years ago. And he was close enough with God that he knew it was God's heart that what was happening in heaven would happen on earth. And I don't think God ever asked David to do this. I don't think he ever asked him to set up musicians and singers and to minister to God through music on top of the sacrifices that they were already doing at Gibeon. This was simply David learning the preferences of God, catching a glimpse of what's happening in heaven. He sees heaven and he says, Lord, like I know that it's your will that earth would become like heaven. And I see what you've surrounded yourself with in heaven and I'm going to surround myself here on earth with that same thing. I'm gonna surround your presence here on earth with the same thing. This was thousands of years before Jesus prayed the prayer, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? And David is making that happen. Crazy, crazy. So David is going beyond the law, he's going beyond religion, and he's moving into relationship. He's moving into learning preferences. He's moving into doing extravagant offerings of worship that are not even asked for. I think so often in faith, like in growing up, it's like you wanna make sure that what you're doing for God, like he's asked for it specifically. Or like if you're, I don't, I don't know, can't think of a good example. Like, you know, using instruments in worship where people can say like, man, in the New Testament, there was no instruments used for worship. But it's like, God so often is honored by like us looking at him and looking for his preferences and saying, God, I'm just gonna do my best to meet your preferences. I'm just gonna do my best to love you in the way that you want to be loved and not even in the way that I wanna be loved. So we're gonna do a couple points here. So that's, that's point one, is that long before Jesus prayed the famous Lord's Prayer, David knew that it was God's heart, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. We see that God likes music God likes our prayers, and David is going above and beyond what was required of him to love the Lord. Secondly, we see that David understood that he was a priest. And in, a, in two weeks, I'm just gonna take the whole night and talk about like our priestly roles. It talks about it in Exodus, talks about it in Isaiah, it talks about it in Hebrews, it talks about it in Revelation of our main identity now as the bride of Christ, our priests. It's our primary function as priests. And so when David brought the tabernacle, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, he took the role of a priest. He wore the priestly ephod, which non-priests typically don't wear, and he still followed the Lord's commands. I, I think it's really interesting of non-Levites were not allowed to offer sacrifices, and that's one of the reasons why Saul got in trouble. And so David still dressed up as a priest, but then when they offered sacrifices, he still had a priest alongside him offering the sacrifices. And so he wasn't just going, like throwing out God's commands, he was following his commands and offering above and beyond. And so David recognized that his primary purpose in life was to be a priest unto the Lord. Before him being a king, before him being anything else, his primary purpose was to be a priest. It was his purpose to minister to the Lord. And we wanna be so intentional about 
our primary purpose of gathering, our primary purpose of a community, our primary purpose of individuals is to minister to the Lord. I really think that there's three purposes for, for the church, for the collective body of Christ, and especially for gatherings. Anytime the believers gather, the number one purpose is to minister to the Lord. Number two, it's discipleship, and number three, it's reach the lost. But it has to be in those order, in that order. It has to be one, two, three, because that's the only thing that keeps things in alignment. To minister to the Lord. I was talking to my, uh, my brother-in-law about this, actually, of how we say that every week we come in and say, like, tonight is not about you. We're not trying to meet people's preferences. We're not trying to do anything except minister to the Lord. And we're learning how to do that, and we're making mistakes, and we're getting some things right, but we just wanna bless him. We just wanna honor him. And that's the heart posture of coming in, of when we come in to bless the Lord, like, he's honored by that. And it actually opens up our hearts to receive from him in a way that we never would be able to receive from him if we just came in to be consumers. And I was talking to my brother-in-law about it and I love, his response was so good. He's just like, man, like, I don't feel like I typically go to church like that. Like I typically go for a good message, to learn something. It's super common. Like I've, I've probably spent most of my life going to church and even leading worship of coming in and saying like, man, I really hope God moves today. I really hope I have a great encounter with God today. Man, I really hope I learn something new with good motivation so that I can love him better, so that I can be, you know, you go down the list. But I know that I think all of us are really connected in, in Sunday morning churches, but whether we're coming here on Thursday night or going to our, our Sunday morning churches on Sundays, our primary purpose of going in needs to be we are priests before the Lord. We are priests before the Lord, and we are coming in to give him an offering. We're here to give him an offering of thanks, of praise. It's another thing that God specifically states in, in Scripture, of enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. It's why we start off every week with thanksgiving and praise, not because it makes a whole lot of sense sometimes. Sometimes we start singing thank you, and I feel nothing. I'm like, man, I've already said thank you today. Like, I don't understand this. And yet God said, like, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We wanna meet God, we wanna love him with his preferences, the way that he wants to be loved. And it also means that when we, when we gather together, like, there's, a, there's no difference between, like, the worship team or people playing mu music or instruments up there and everybody else right here. Like, we are one community, we are one people, we are, we are the priesthood coming together to minister to the Lord. So, number three, David understood that God was after hearts and not just obedience. So the, he had this crazy revelation of, of God, Yahweh, where he knew that God wasn't just after obedience, which kind of was against everything else that people had believed before then. All the leaders and it had seen with the law, everybody believed that God would just wanted them to follow the law, and that'll be it. And David understood that God had given the law to draw their hearts to him. In Psalm 51, it says, for the source of your pleasure is not in my performance. Crazy, where did he learn that? He didn't learn that from the law. He learned that from spending time with the Lord, of seeing him, of asking the Lord what his preference was says, for the source of your pleasure is not in my performance or the sacrifices I might offer you. Crazy for him to say that. The fountain of your pleasure is found in the sacrifice of my shattered heart before you. And this is Psalm 51. So this is, that's David's apology after he committed adultery, murdered someone, and tried to cover it up. 
And it would be so easy, holy crap, how many times have I done in my life where I've, I've messed up and then I've just tried to like work my way back into things. It's like David had a deeper revelation of who God was than so many times we do today, 2,000 years after the cross, where we've seen a public display of the Lord's love for us. David goes, he goes on to say in that chapter, so wash me with your love until my conscience is clean. <laughs> it's just, it's wild to me. He literally, he committed adultery, killed someone and tried to cover it up. And he has the audacity to say, I know you still love me and I need to feel it until my conscience is clean. Like that takes way more than just hearing about God from stories. That takes way more than just knowing the law and memorizing things. That takes having spent time and having encounters with God and saying, God, like I know that I messed up. I know that I messed up and there's sacrifices I could make to try to make it right. There's things I could do to try to earn back your good graces. But right now I'm saying that I am broken in front of you. I have messed up. I screwed this up and I need you to wash me with your love until my conscience is clean again. Crazy. Crazy. David knew that God was not just interested in, he wasn't just interested in us doing things for him. He, he wants us to know him. I really think that the Bible is the primary way that we learn the preferences of God, but God also wants to just teach you preferences of what he likes about the way that you love him. I remember, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but uh, it was probably four or five years ago and I just started, um, was living in Greenwood, in Old Town Greenwood. Shout out to these guys over here who live in there. And that's like the best walking neighborhood ever. Best walking neighborhood. So we'd go out of our house and we'd walk down into this little valley and I just loved walks. And so I started walking like every morning and I started praying with the Lord and I, I don't remember how, for how many weeks or months I'd been doing it. And I went to this conference and this guy started praying over me. And, the, and he said, hey, the Lord just wants me to tell you that he loves walking with you. He loves walking with you. Like, all right, I learned a preference. I learned a way to love the Lord. I learned a way that means something to him, something that I can do that can actually move his heart. It's not in the Bible that he enjoys walking with people. It's not a command. It's not something that he requires me to do, but it's something that he enjoys, something that I can give him. We won't turn to it, but in Psalm 141, David says, let the lifting of my hands be like pleasing fragrance to you. Let the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice to you. And um, scholars think that he wrote that while on the run from Saul. So he couldn't be at the tabernacle. He couldn't physically offer sacrifices. But what he's saying is, God, would the lifting of my hand be equivalent to you like sacrifices? Would it be like fragrance before you? This crazy thing of like, God has a thing for hands. He likes it when we lift our hands. It's called, in, in Hebrew, it's, it's very similar to the word praise of the lifting up of your hands. And so people have been lifting up hands in worship for thousands of years. 
It's not just something that started when rock concerts started. It's like thousands of years, even before Christ, there was the lifting of hands in praise to the Lord because David understood that God likes hands. <laughs> and even Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says, to pray with holy hands lifted up. I don't know why, but it's a sacrifice to lift our hands to him. Number four, God loves unity. David understood that God loves unity. He wrote in Psalm 133.1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And again, Jesus prays this in John 17, his high priestly prayer, right before he goes to the cross. He says, God, it is my will that they would be one. I've given them my glory, the glory that you have given me, Father, I have given them so that they will be one, which is wild. I love, I love that context where it's like, the people of God becoming one in unity around the glory of God. That there's something that is so unifying about beholding the beauty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus that unifies communities and is so pleasing to the heart of God. And I, I keep talking to people, leaders, pastors all over our city, like 10 to 15 pastors. I, t I see it all over the place in churches, uh, like upper room, and all over the country where people are saying like the same thing of, man, we feel like the Lord is calling us to unity in prayer, to unity in prayer, to just worship and pray. We don't understand it, but he's calling us to worship and to pray. And I really believe that the 420 community, what God is building here is he's building a presence-centered family that lives in unity and in righteousness, that lives it out. And I've just, I've been so excited and convicted about like, I, we have no interest in, in having like a ministry or anything like that, but do have a conviction that we wanna see people grow in the conviction of ministering to him, of ministering to him. And we wanna do it together as family because God loves unity. He loves it when we come together with the same heart and say, Lord, you are the leader of this house. You are the king of this house. There may be people in leadership. God still put judges over the nation of Israel. There may be people in leadership, but God is the king. He's the head of this house. And the primary reason that we gather is to bless him, is to minister to him. And we do so in unity, in loving each other. Last verses. Let's go to uh, 2 Samuel 7. So this is after David has built the tabernacle. He's assigned musicians and singers, and it said that David would go in every morning and give thanks and praise to God. Can you imagine being one of those musicians or singers and David's like, I'm hiring you full time. Your job is to thank the Lord. Any people who like need specific job descriptions, that would drive them crazy. It's like, it's like wait, what? <laughs> like, yeah, thank him. Praise him. Okay. Second Samuel 7. 
we'll just read this. After the king, David, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell, to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell David my servant, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give to you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself, this is the Davidic covenant right now. This is the reason why Jesus was known as the son of David. This passage right here, this is the reason why in Revelation it says that Jesus sits on the throne of David. It says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to, to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with flogging inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Pause there. David, I mean, I love this so much. David wants to build a temple for God instead of a tabernacle something that God never asked for. And I love God's response. God's, God's like, have I ever once asked for a temple? Have I ever once said that this tent wasn't enough for me? I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to say I live in a tent anyway. <laughs> I'm everywhere. And yet I love the heart of David. I love the heart of David so much of saying, how can I live in this beautiful palace while God is in a tent? And then I love God's response. And this is such a, this is such a, I don't know, a core value of, of life maybe is the best way to describe it, of when we seek first to please the Lord, he gives us the desires of our hearts. It was David's greatest desires, the desire of any king back in the day that their line would succeed forever. And God doesn't make this covenant with any other king, but it's when David says, God, I want to build you a house I wanna build you a resting place. I want to give you something that, no, you didn't ask for it, but I wanna bless you with it. And God turns around and says, really, you would do that for me? Great, how about this? You don't get to build it, your son will, but how about I establish your kingdom forever? How would I give you the desire of your heart? It's the same thing Jesus taught of, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. It's what David said of, make God the utmost desire of your heart and God will give you the desires of your heart. It's the same thing for Solomon, his son, when God asked Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And Solomon says, give me wisdom to rule these people well. And God says, wow, <laughs> because you asked for something that pleased my heart, I'm giving you everything else as well. 
when we prioritize ministering to the Lord and making it our life's goal to learn what he likes, to learn what he dislikes through scripture, through one-on-one time with him, and to give our lives to blessing him, he then fulfills the desires of our heart. And we'll close with, with this. This is David's response. Holy moly. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Just picture this like, this regal king in a crown and robes. And he just, he goes in to see him like sitting Indian style in the temple with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle. This king who had accomplished so much and conquered so many kingdoms and had so many reasons to brag. And he says, who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this was not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you. If you're familiar with our model, I I think David really, he goes through TPWI here. He thanks the Lord, he praises the Lord, he worships and responds to him. And then at the end, he turns it into intercession of saying, God, now do what you have said. We agree with your promise for the future. So he said, and now, Lord, keep your promise forever, in verse 25, made concerning your servant in his house. But his response, and who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? It's just my prayer that that would be that would be my heart response and that would be our heart response in our lives of no matter like how wise or how much we accomplish or anything. It's like David saying like, Lord, you, <laughs> you picked me. You put your spirit in me. You gave me the breath in my lungs. You gave me the opportunity. You gave me all ability, all gifting, all opportunity. You placed all resources in my hands. Like, how could I receive credit for any of this? And now on top of it, you want to reward me for that? It's amazing. Let me pray for us.